Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, a researcher who believes he knows the trigger for sarcoidosis. I've just been impressed over the years when I see the patients with sarcoid, I'm like, I take a pretty detailed, you know, occupational history. Okay, what kind of jobs have you had since you were in high school? Dr. Stephen Tilley is an associate professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina, where they see thousands of sarcoidosis patients. And every, almost every single patient had a very suspicious um, exposure. And so that sort of fits with the theory. So I think the patient um, inhales something. Coming up, my interview with Dr. Tilly, where we get downright granular with granulomas. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. This is episode 92 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. I want to remind you that Kinevent Sciences is researching a potential new drug for sarcoidosis called nemilumab, which inhibits one of the key proteins believed responsible for granuloma formation and persistence in sarcoidosis. I invite you to go back and listen to episode 69 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, where Kind of CEO Bill Gerhardt and Director of Patient Advocacy Randy Rogers join me to talk about the status of nemilumab and how you, as a sarcoidosis patient, can participate in the ongoing phase two clinical trial called Resolve Lung. And there is a link in the show notes if you'd like to participate. Thank you to Kind of Sciences for all they're doing. Now, I want to move on and talk a little bit about my talk with Dr. Tilly because I thought it was very interesting. He will veer a little bit in and out of deep dives into the drivers of sarcoidosis. He, he does get, as they say, a little bit granular, um, and, but we're talking about granulomas. He's talking a little bit about what happens inside our cells that makes sarcoidosis sort of do what it does, if that makes sense. Uh, But he also talks a lot in layman's terms about a lot of things that we can all relate to when it comes to sarcoidosis. So I would just say if if it gets a little too technical, it doesn't last for very long. So if you're listening and you feel like you want to hit the fast forward button, I'd say don't because um, it was interesting to kind of understand what's going on in our cells, uh, but it and it may be over the head of most people. It was over my head, certainly. Uh, but but then he comes back to it, and I tried to bring him back to it, and and he really does a good job. And then uh, I want to let you know that I I met him in person. Uh, we do I do all these interviews uh, via Zoom, by the way. But I met him in person at the FSR Crystal Gala in Washington, D.C. back in May. It was at the cocktail reception, and I really enjoyed talking with him about his research. And, you know, this is just, you know, I'm standing there with, I think I had a glass of wine, and, and, and we're just chatting, and I've talked to a number of people in the room, but I spent a fair amount of time with him. And so, to me, it was a no-brainer to have him come on and talk about his research and some of his conclusions so far. And, you know, I like it when somebody is willing to talk about 
a conclusion, especially in an area like sarcoidosis where we, we don't know yet what we don't know. But I like it when people talk about what we do know and, and you know, where we are, what is the status of things. And, and he was willing to do that. In fact, what really struck with me is the fact that he asked me, he said, John, where did you get sarcoidosis? And I, that seemed odd to me because, to my knowledge, there's there's no way of knowing that, right? I, that's that's one of the big mysteries. We don't know the cause of sarcoidosis, and we don't have a cure for sarcoidosis. But he is the second doctor to tell me that he believes that it was caused by something that we inhaled at some point in our lives, and and that triggered the sarcoidosis response in our body. And he believes that a lot of people can inhale the same thing. But, and this is where we get back to the genetics thing, which we've talked about going back to the recent town hall with 23andMe and some of the other doctors that I've talked to, only a small percentage of people's bodies respond with the granulomas that define sarcoidosis. So what am I saying there? Well, you inhale something and most people, your body just dispenses with it and you go on with your normal life. But for a certain small percentage of people, you inhale that same thing and your body says, whoa, there's an attack on the body and all of a sudden it starts sending these white blood cells and and all these other types of cells to what it thinks is the rescue when in fact you're just getting a granuloma that then clusters in your lungs primarily, but you know, in my case, my spinal cord and some people it's in their heart and that, and you don't want it there, right? So, and, th- and that's what sarcoidosis is, very generally speaking. And so he thinks that there is a, a small percentage of people who breathe something in, and then you get this immune response that you don't necessarily want, and then it persists. So why does it persist? And you're going back to kind of in sciences. They're looking, they're looking at this drug, nemilumab, and hoping that... Uh, it will it will prevent that persistence, right? So essentially, tell sarcoidosis go away. Um, so there's there's a lot going on with the research, and I'm I'm way over generalizing right now, trying to keep this at an, at an, at a level where we all can can understand it. And you always run a risk when you generalize that you you're you're actually um, saying the wrong thing by being too broad. But uh, we're going to, if you listen to Dr. Tilly, uh, he will be the opposite of that. And, and I really think that you will enjoy listening to his interview. It goes for about uh, 40 minutes, and we'll get to that very shortly here. But um, in the meantime, I just want to say I hope you're having a good summer. We are recording this, we, I, uh, in July of 2023. The interview with Dr. Tilly was just about uh, a week ago, but also in July. I've had a good summer so far. I've been out on my kayak. I did some fishing, which I love. I had to drag my kayak out of the weeds in the backyard and clean it up, and it it is amazingly in in good shape. But I went out. It uh, It was early morning. It was a Sunday morning, just about at sunrise. There was still mist hovering in the mountains surrounding the Roanoke River. There was no wind, so it was just very calm. There's no current where we were. It's right where uh, that river joins uh, a local lake called Smith Mountain Lake. And for a while, right after I launched, I just sat there. 
I was just I was just enjoying the morning, the sunrise. I had my coffee on the kayak with me. So a blue heron flew by. And, you know, the blue heron is that big, big blue bird. They stand about four feet high. You'll see them waiting. It looked like a 747 compared to the uh, compared to the songbirds that were flitting around and singing. And then there was a kingfisher screeching a bit. I think I actually think there was several kingfishers going from branch to branch along the river. And, you know, and I must be getting older. Because a few years ago, I would have gotten in that kayak and I would have been so eager to catch a fish, you know, to catch a big fish, right? I would have paddled over and started pounding likely spots for bass just as quickly as I could. You know, but on this day, I literally set out, I had my fly rod with me and I was just fishing for sunfish, bluegills, just small fish about the size of your hand. I catch them and release them. Um, and I actually, I did, I probably caught 10, which was, that's a nice day. And I did wind up catching a nice bass, which turned out to be a bonus, uh, through my, through my lure out there underneath the hanging branch. And he was just sitting there waiting for a bug to, to fall in the water and, uh, managed to catch the bass. So that was nice. But yeah, so I don't know. I just really, really enjoyed that. I can't believe that I left the kayak down in the weeds in the backyard for, I basically two summers and it was just so nice to get out there. And then also I just recently got on my mountain bike out on the gorgeous trails at Carvin's Cove here in Roanoke, Virginia. Again, just nice to be in the woods, riding on the narrow trails, swooping around the occasional corner. There's a, a creek crossing that's always fun. This time of year the water is low. I've I've gone through it when the water was over my pedals, but um it's not dangerous. I mean, it's not, it's not, well, it, you really don't have to worry about it. You just have to kind of trust that the, the tires are not going to slip out on the rocks, which they never have. And you just go across the Creek and, and that's, then that's fun. It's only about 10 feet across. It's not a big deal. Uh, however, on that particular day, my buddy Gary <laughs> wiped out his front wheel, slipped out on a route and he landed on his arm which was instantly covered in blood, and that was the end of our mountain bike ride. Gary, Gary's fine. In fact, uh, he was with me the next day on that kayak trip, uh, but he uh, he did make a quick stop at urgent care, and they patched him up. So <laughs> you do have to be careful, uh, which just reminds me, sometimes I have to pinch myself because here I am, I'm in my early 60s, and I'm still doing this stuff. Uh, even even with the setbacks from sarcoidosis. And again, I have neurosarc on my spinal cord, basically right in the back of my neck. And so I stay as active as I can, but balance is an issue. Uh, motor control in parts of my core and my legs is questionable sometimes. Like yesterday, um, I was out with my son, Ben, and we have an old motorboat that's been in the family literally since my grandmother bought it in 1975 okay that's how old this boat is and my dad passed it down I was I was driving that boat when I was 15 but my dad passed it down to my son Ben uh, who's reasonably technical likes to take care of things like that and so forth but we're having trouble with the motor and we had to take the cover off, and we're just out there uh, in the lake, not far from the dock, trying to get the motor running, and it's it's malfunctioning. I won't get into all that. But I had to climb up on top of the motor and take the cover off, 
And that used to be something that I would do without thinking, but I got up there and realized, you know what, I'm about to pitch into the lake. I undid the latch to pull the cover off the motor, and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get back into the boat. I did, but it was with a couple of awkward steps, and Ben and I decided that uh, that he would do that from now on. So, you know, that's just the kind of stuff that just makes me so angry and and. It, it used to be something that I would not even think about, but bending over and leaning back and then, you know, kind of using my core and my legs to, to get back in the boat. It's, I mean, it's just, it's only a step. It's only a step down, uh, but it's mm, 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 makes me mad. But uh, the good news is, is that I can still, you know, I can still do the mountain biking. I wasn't the one that wiped out on the trail <laughs> this time. Thank God. Uh, and I, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to keep doing this stuff. I'm going to keep fishing and cycling and skiing as long as I can enjoy it. And I, every time I do it, I feel like I'm taking it both to aging and to sarcoidosis. All right. I know you're going to enjoy this interview with Dr. Stephen Tilley, from the University of North Carolina, and that is coming up next here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. Joining me now is Dr. Stephen Tilley at the University of North Carolina, who is spending a great deal of time looking at the causes and hopefully solutions for sarcoidosis. Dr. Tilley, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you are, uh, you. why don't you just tell people where it is that you work at UNC? You sort of have a pulmonary center there, do you not? Um, we do. So we have, um, it's called the Marsico Lung Institute, and it's um, a very large research center to study the pathogenesis and treatment of lung diseases. And we're very excited to um, be launching an initiative into sarcoidosis. We have a long history of studying sarcoidosis here, but um, the technology has really evolved over the years. And I think we um, today have much more powerful tools to really advance the field. Uh, and I'm really anxious to to take a deep dive into this. You and I met, uh, I think I had a glass of wine in my hand, but we were at the FSR Gala in Washington, D.C. Um, so were you there to observe or uh, to present or just to to mingle or, and and make some contacts in the field? What what was going on with, with your purpose for being there? Sure. So um, my career is, um, I started off, studying sarcoidosis and I moved into asthma and the momentum sort of took me in that direction. And um, 
a few years ago, I decided I wanted to move back into sarcoidosis. And so at the ATS, I went and attended every sarcoidosis symposium to sort of, you know, catch up on the disease as much as I could. And then we have a small grant with the, with the FSR and that's how I heard about the gala. Right. Right. That's what I thought it was. Okay. So, um, you have uh, something called the Granuloma Project that you are working on. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as the listeners probably know, the the non-caseating or non-necrotizing granuloma is the histological hallmark um, of sarcoidosis, and you need to find that in a tissue to make the diagnosis. And importantly, you need to also exclude that the granuloma is not caused by an infectious agent. So typically stains and cultures are done for, for organisms. Um, but in 2023, we have much more powerful tools to, to um, one, exclude infection, but two, look for potential genetic drivers of the granulomatous process. And um, so at the time of biopsy right now, um, the tissue is sent to pathology and it's put into, um, it's processed and then looked at under slides by the pathologist. Well, this new technology came out called um, spatial transcriptomics where they can actually take the same paraffin embedded tissue, um, make some additional slices, put it in this fancy machine that then can sort of cut out the granulomas. Then it can sequence the DNA within the granuloma from every individual that gets biopsied to look at their unique genetic sequence. It can, and one could also use the same um, techniques, but having probes for micro for infectious organisms to ensure that there's no fungi or mycobacteria or any other potential pathogen that's driving the granulomatous formation. Okay, so uh, I want to unpack all that a little bit because yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So, so you you cut into the granuloma and then you can isolate the DNA. Um, so we've already talked a little bit on the podcast. We did a podcast just recently with 23andMe, which is doing some DNA genetic-based research to see if there are patterns, because we don't really know the cause of, of sarcoidosis, as, as far as I know. Um, so so when you slice into it and you look for that DNA, are, are you looking for patterns or are you looking for something specific that we know about? Right. Um, you can do it either way. You can do an unbiased approach where you look at everything or you can target specific pathways. And the pathway of particular interest to me is called the autophagy pathway. I don't know if you or the listeners have heard of that, but no, that's, autoph that's new. Yeah. <laughs> autophagy is the body's way of um, get ridding, get, getting rid of things that are no longer needed. And so inside of your lungs, you have um, macrophages, which engulf things, right? And so the macrophage, even without engulfing anything, the parts of the cell sometimes will sort of wear out and become bad and the cell has to clear it without causing an inflammatory response. Um, same for inhaled particles. So if you inhale particles into your lungs, the macrophage will, um, you know, engulf the particles and then sort of digest them and get rid of them, hopefully without generating an inflammatory response. And that process is called autophagy. Some recent studies in sarcoidosis, um, families have found some mutations in genes in the autophagy pathway, suggesting that defective processing of something one might inhale could contribute to pathogenesis. And so I think we can use the current technology to look for those particular mutations in patients. And there's actually specific 
therapies that um, target some of these pathways. One is called serolimus, which is used um, for other diseases. It, ta- it targets something called mTOR, and mTOR is probably the, the most um, well-recognized protein in the autophagy pathway. Okay, that is, um, I'm going to have to go back to college. To, <laughs> yeah, to sorry if it's that. a little no. too complicated. Well, it's 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 interesting, though. So if we were to put that in layperson terms, yeah. You've got you've got a granuloma that you're looking at, and you're looking at all the different things that could be making it worse, right, or causing it. Yes. Uh, and, and because what happens is, is when you get a granuloma, you get a whole bunch of these cells that cluster together, and that's that's essentially what forms these non-caseating granulomas, which then go on to damage the tissue. Uh, that that they're surrounding and unfortunately in many cases that's the lungs or that's the heart or that is uh, I've got a I've got a guy that I'm talking to right now who wants to come on the podcast in his bones so you have all these things happening what what can you do if you see something that you recognize uh, as the problem I mean, if we find the genetic abnormality, yeah, sure, genetic defect, yeah, yeah. So if if the mutation is in mTOR, then you can use the drug serolimus. There's been some data showing that um, the pathway that interleukin six, a cytokine, signals through might also be um, have some mutations, and there's drugs which block that. Actually, one of the drugs is used for COVID. Um, it's a monoclonal antibody um, called barcitinib. Um, so yeah, so I think in a subset of patients, you might find something that would lead to um, a very targeted um, treatment. Gotcha. So because right now, uh, patient, do you treat any patients or are you strictly uh, in the lab and doing research? Uh, um, no, I've had a, a outpatient pulmonology clinic since 1995 um, and a sarcoidosis clinic as well. So I do okay. treat, treat patients. Right. So, so how, how many SARC patients would you have at any given time? I don't know about me, but UNC has um, over 6,000 sarcoidosis patients in our um, system. Okay. So we, we have a, quite that's a large a number. You're seeing SARC patients pretty much every time you're in clinic then? Yes, that's what got me interested. When I trained here in our um, training, it's called Pulmonary Fellows Clinic, it was like every third patient had this disease. I had an asthma patient, a COPD patient, and I had a patient with this strange disease called sarcoidosis, which I've never seen until my pulmonology fellowship. So the high concentration of patients in this area, plus um, I'm very interested in immunology, led to my interest in the disease. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So um, because I'm going to right now, if if, for people who listen to this podcast, there's there's sort of a natural progression of the drugs that you take. Uh, Mm -hmm. You start out and and you put somebody on prednisone and that hopefully reduces the inflammation and then. We're using uh, typically next, it would be, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say methotrexate would be the next arrow in the quiver. Um, And then you start looking at a a series of others. Uh, Imuran is one that I take. Um, So, and and do you want to kind of continue that normal list? Because after we do that, then I want to come back to how you're doing this targeted stuff. Sure. 
Um, yeah, so there's um, some clinical practice guidelines which recommend exactly what you're saying. Um, unfortunately, not based on a lot of data. It's more expert consensus opinion, but that's correct. So it's prednisone. Then second line would be methotrexate, azathioprine. Third line is usually um, an anti-TNF like infliximab or Humira, mm -hmm. um, Remicade or Humira. And yeah. then fourth, maybe Acthar gel is on the list now. Acthar. Why, tell me about that. Um, so that's an interesting um, treatment. Have you, so that's um, it's a gel that's injected subcutaneously, and it's um, essentially made of something called ACTH. It's what your pituitary secretes to make your adrenal glands secrete cortisol, which is like prednisone. But in addition to causing a little bit of um, cortisol secretion, ACTH bonds to other um, receptors called melanocortin receptors on immune cells and suppresses inflammation. So it's believed that this Acthar gel might work not just by sort of increasing cortisol or prednisone, but also by some additional mechanisms. So it would it would increase your body's own production of prednisone. Exactly. Yes. Got it. Got it. Um, so uh, have you had some success treating patients with Acthar gel? Um, I think Bob Boffman has the largest experience. He just um, published a phase four study um, of that. And he, um, was I with the, he was with the University of Cincinnati, right? Ex yes, exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So go, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, that's okay. Um, so... I guess, you know, all diseases were getting more and more targeted therapy. And so a really great example and analogy um, is lung cancer. So 20 years ago, we would tell our patients to go fishing. We have nothing for you. Now, because of similar techniques to what I'm describing for the sarcoidosis project, um, they, when they do the, lung, the biopsy for lung cancer, they will sequence the genome and find mutations that they can target with very specific drugs. And these drugs have really extended the lifespan of the lung cancer patient. They're highly effective if you have a particular mutation. And so the goal would kind of be similar for sarcoidosis rather than just the prednisone is like a, you know, it's like a bomb, right? Mm -hmm. it, it globally suppresses inflammation. And if we could give a much more targeted therapy, I think there's a chance it would be, you know, um, potentially more effective with um, certainly less side effects, we would hope. Right. So do you see uh, hope on the horizon? Are there, are there, soon to be some new arrows in the quiver that you can use to treat folks? I think so. So these drugs that I mentioned that we could identify by the genetic analysis, they're already being studied in people. So they've been given for refractory disease and there may be some clinical trials with them. But again, that's also sort of a, a shotgun approach, right? You do not know whether or not the patient has that particular mutation. So I think if you can find which mutation, if any, the patient has, you can you know, expose them to the appropriate therapy kind of without, without the guesswork that's currently being done. Yeah. So when you and I met, you asked me where I got sarcoidosis. Yeah. So, uh, and, and you weren't asking me like where on my body, you were saying, where in the world were you when you were exposed to something? So you that's obviously right. believe that, uh, that people can know that. Can you back that out for me a little bit? Sure. So, um, I've just been impressed over the years when I see the patients with sarcoid, I'm like, I take a pretty detailed, you know, occupational history. Okay. What kind of jobs have you had since you were in high school? And I get these responses. Like I used to cut metal. I used to um, do demolition and every, almost every single patient had a very suspicious um, exposure. And so that sort of fits with the theory. So I think the patient um, inhales something 
And 99 people could digest that particle and clear it and do just fine. But, you know, one out of every 100 or, you know, maybe not that common patient has a particular defect in the autophagy pathway and they can't quite clear the particle that they inhale. And that leads to perpetual ongoing granulomatous inflammation in the lungs. And so we're trying to analyze that. And this has been reported by others, but um, not in the, I guess, to the degree that I think might be out there. And so we're, we're doing a prospective analysis of every patient now asking them this history and whether or not, and to date, um, 67% of our sarcoidosis patients have a very suspicious um, occupational or environmental history of in, potentially inhaling something which could have been the initiating driver of their granulomas. 67%. Right. Wow. So, so is it safe to say that you think inhaling something is the trigger for sarcoidosis in, 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 in most people? I do. In our po population, I think it's the combination of, of the inhaling that plus having um, somewhere in your autophagy pathway, um, a genetic mutation that predisposes you to having difficulty clearing the particle. It's interesting, many, many years ago in the probably 30s when they used to do electron microscopy, it's a technique where you can look at detail inside of cells, they would see things in the um, macrophages from the lungs of the sarcoidosis patients that shouldn't be there. Um, they didn't know what they were, but there was like, there's something there, um, which kind of fits with the with our theory as well. Uh-huh. So are we going to call it a theory or a hypothesis going back to my, you know, yeah, yeah. days? <laughs> I actually almost said hypothesis, okay. when I spit out theory. So sure. It still is a hypothesis. Okay. All right. I'm just, I'm just curious. All right. So, so we've got this hypothesis. Um, so what is it that you think, is there a common, you, you mentioned cutting metal and I know that there's a high degree of sarcoidosis from the first responders going back to the world trade center uh, yeah. who inhaled all the dust that was coming out of that. Um, is there a particular area of concern that seems to keep popping up? Um, no, it's a wide variety of um, inhalational exposures, but if I had to link the, um, we're actually having a poster at the um, annual, it's called CHEST, it's the American College of Chest Physicians meeting this year, um, presenting um what we found in our population of what they were exposed to. And we have a nice little pie chart showing that. Um, I would say if I had to pick one thing that was probably most, it'd be construction type work. And so these patients um, will sometimes cut bricks and you have aerosolized particles from the brick. Or I just met a guy in clinic yesterday, a new sarcoidosis patient, and he used to, um, he was a construction guy who installed roof tiles. And he described like he put the tile up and the, you know, the debris would kind of fall out of the ceiling and he would breathe it in. Um, and he was doing that a couple of years before he developed sarcoidosis. Wow. Now, of course, we have um, we have a high number, high percentage of patients who are African American women. Probably are not cutting bricks. Uh, is there um, is there any uh, theory or hypothesis for that group? Yeah, that's actually a, a great question. Um, so, almost a large majority of our patients at UNC are African American, and um, we have men and women. And um, I'm trying to actually remember the. Um, male female breakdown on our so we've only started this analysis this like prospective analysis with where I said 67 percent that is only analyzing about um, 50 patients okay. out of our 6,000 right. um, what well so I have a woman she um, thinks it was her cat litter 
Um, uh -huh. that, that would be the dust for her. Um, some of the other women, North Carolina is a, a heavy textile um, state. And yeah. so some of the women worked in factories um, with cotton dust and um, other, other dusts in the fact from factory work. Yeah. Um, other, others are, their exposure was um, like printers and ink from printers, uh, things like that. But that man, this is just fascinating. That yeah. that you know, you're just walking around. You have no idea, but you're the one person out of a hundred, or maybe out of a thousand, uh, right. who who breathes that in. And and so, of course, my um, my hard drive is worrying, trying to think what I may have been exposed to. Yeah. The, only, the only thing I can ever think of is we had bought an old house, and I was refinishing the doorways in the old house. Uh, which had layers and layers and layers of paint on them mm -hmm. going back to the days of lead paint. And I was using a heat gun mm -hmm. to um, to try and strip the old paint. And I was breathing that stuff in. And I can mm -hmm. remember I would do it in the morning because I worked in the evening and I'd go to work just feeling really bad. That's about the only thing that I would say mm -hmm. other than all the other things in 60 years of living on this earth that I may have <laughs> inhaled along the way. Does that sound like something that it could have been? Well, you know, if you were one of my patients, that's what I would put down in my list of potential um, exposures yeah. that might be yeah. the driver. Yeah. Interesting. So, so it's a combination of where these lines cross of you inhaled something and then you had the genetic predisposition. And so you lose. Is that, is that basically it? Yeah, that is our hypothesis. Yeah. And I want to ask you something else because I've been, this is purely anecdotal, but there is a high percentage of people who have joined me on the podcast who have been athletic in one way or another and often in endurance sports either at a high level or a high recreational level so people would say things to me like um you know i was hiking in the grand canyon for the fourth time and that's if you've ever been to the grand canyon that that's that's not a tourist hike right uh but i that you know they got down to the bottom of the grand canyon for the fourth time in their life and all of a sudden they couldn't walk it seems like all these people are extremely active. Is there any indication that would tie endurance athletes to sarcoidosis that you um, have ever seen or heard or thought of or hypothesized? Um, I can't think of any reason for that. And I, I don't know. So I, I know if like a handful, so I know we had a Carolina Panthers football player that had sarcoidosis, huh. but to best of my knowledge, it doesn't seem to be like overrepresented um, in high endurance people. Right. Got it. Okay. I thought I'd throw a, take a flyer out there, maybe plant a seed and who knows what comes up down the road. Yeah. But, yeah. um, but yeah, it just, it just seems like I'll be talking to people on the podcast, uh, cause they'll come on because they have sarcoidosis and eventually we'll, we'll get into their life and they'll talk about all the various things that they've done. And it just seems like it, it just keeps coming up. I, you know, I, I was a marathon runner. And uh -huh. so then I'm thinking about, well, you're out there running all those miles. Who knows what you were exposed to when you were out there riding right. your bike a hundred miles or running 26 miles, right. um, you know, you could have breathed in anything, right? Yeah. And fitting sort of fitting your hypothesis here then is, um, so when, um, 
when you do exercise, you definitely increase your your ventilation. And so, for example, at UNC, we have exposure chambers where um, they pay undergraduates to come in and be exposed to all kinds of particles, particulate matter, and they have them on a bike to exercise. So they actually breathe more of it deeper down into their lungs. So there is a little bit of a basis to your your hypothesis that high endurance training could increase your inhalational exposure and predispose you. But I don't know of any epidemiological data on in that regard. Sure. So your lungs are more open because they're working harder. Yeah. Right. And you breathe so, a lot more air. So you breathe, you can breathe air. like 20 times the amount of air when you're exercising hard compared to just, you know, being sedentary. Aha. Right. Ah, a seed. A seed. Okay. So you've mentioned several times that there are new tools, new techniques that didn't used to exist to study uh, sarcoidosis. Can you give me sort of a layperson's uh, description of some of this stuff, some of these things that might cause hope for people who are listening? Sure. So mostly it's it's the genetic evaluation. So, um, you know, years ago and even still today, so we, we'll do the biopsy and we have the tissue and it's cut and it's stained and you visually look at it and you're like looking for um, tuberculosis organisms. You're looking for fungal organisms and you, you see the granuloma structure with your eyes, the pathologist does, and it's sent to the lab for culture and you know, now we have PCR, which can amplify DNA, and it's much more sensitive than just um, culturing for an organism. And so, like, if you um, take a patient who has a, a respiratory virus and you put it in culture, it's very difficult for the virus to grow, but you can do PCR and rapidly and very effectively and efficiently identify whether they have SARS, you know, COVID, or whether they have influenza, or whether they have RSV. And so the same thing would apply to sarcoid if we're looking for number one, which is actually the top priority when you have a patient, is it really, quote, sarcoid, or is it an infection driving the granulomas? So that's mm -hmm. one way that the um, genetic technology helps. But the second way is the technology now also allows us to sequence the patient's DNA to see if they have mutations in pathways which could re be responsible for allowing granulomas to not resolve and rather progress. Because that's been the big, I think, the million-dollar question for sarcoid. Why is it that two-thirds of patients, their granulomas will go away spontaneously, mm -hmm. whereas one-third, they don't, and they kind of hang out and keep continue, and a, a very small subset will um kind of have fibrosis from it but why do one-third kind of continue and two-thirds spontaneously remit and i would put out there that it, it's got to be something in um, one of the genetic pathways um, of autophagy that allows the body to clear um, either exogenous particles or potentially even endogenous particles from your own body can you can you um, tell me the difference between exogenous and endogenous oh, yes. particles? Yeah, so exogenous meaning so kind of that's what we've been talking about the whole time here. You're inhaling something metal or um, dust, and that's the particle. But there's also some theories of sarcoid pathogenesis that it's autoimmune, right? It's something in the body that's being gone after. So if the body decides to Normally, you can digest like all of your components when they go bad effectively, but if you can no longer do that anymore, that could lead to the development of granulomas, I think. So you, because you, um, for me, it has, I've been accepting it as a given that sarcoidosis is an autoimmune disorder. Uh. You're, you're saying maybe it is, or sometimes it is. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. The, um, 
it's gone back and I know for early on they would they used to say it was autoimmune and then that kind of fell out of favor that no it's so autoimmune means it usually autoimmune usually means you're making antibodies to something in your own body um and that's not happening in sarcoid as far as we know then the definition of autoimmune has kind of been expanded from just making antibodies to any kind of immune response to something in your body um and so i think sarcoid could be that in some patients but i certainly think it also could be from um inhaling something or being exposed to something external that you cannot get rid of so you inhale it and you have sarcoidosis say in your lungs um that seems to be pretty like an obvious place for it to show up, but for, for folks who are on the podcast or who are listening, who have it in their bones or Mm -hmm. they have it in their heart, did it start in their lungs and then move to those organs or, or how does it get from inhaling something to being in your bones? Yeah. I think that's much harder to um, make the case for our hypothesis um, for those type of organs involved, but I think the thing that supports our hypothesis is that 90% of patients um, have involvement of the intrathoracic lymph nodes or lungs. So the lung is the most common organ involved. And then second is skin and eyes, which are also exposed to the external environment. So that kind of fits with an exposure. Now, how the disease affects the heart and other deeper organs, um, I don't really know. Um, and so, as you know, some patients will have it in their lungs and in the other organs, but, but some people have it isolated to the, to the more deep organs, you know, cardiac sarcoidosis alone. So I don't really have a good explanation for that. I guess one could theorize that the particle becomes, gets into the bloodstream that you inhale and goes mm-hmm. systemic to all the different organs and lodges in different organs and the response happens there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a head scratcher, isn't it? I mean, that's, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we've got about 10 minutes left here, but I want to ask you, so if you were to project your research out, say, five years uh, and you were successful, what will it be that we know in five years that we don't know now? Yeah, so um, if we if we were successful, um, which requires lots of things, you know, funding for the project and um I envision patients coming in, having their routine, you know, bronchoscopy and biopsy as they get done now. But in addition to the normal stains and cultures, they also undergo the genetic analysis that I described with the spatial transcriptomics to look for one infection and two, whether there's defects in your autophagy pathway. Then once we have that analysis, we would prescribe the appropriate drug. If we find a defect in mTOR, we would prescribe serolimus. If we find a genetic mutation in the interleukin-6 pathway, we would find an interleukin-6 receptor antagonist, for example. So you're going to get right down to, instead of uh, the prednisone, which, as you said, bombs the whole body, uh, you want to use a very targeted medication to try and treat the patient. Um, yes, you know, it's, it's very, very challenging, right? Because it also, the disease goes away spontaneously in people. So sometimes we sort of observe for resolution. And so I don't know whether we would be able to get by with the targeted therapy at first or not. It kind of just depends. Um, I would hope so though, eventually. So rheumatology has sort of moved in that direction. You know, years ago, everybody got prednisone for their rheumatoid arthritis. Now no one does. They get these, you know, very potent, highly effective biologic therapies, kind of from the from the forefront so so we're drilling down getting better and better yeah and would would you say that um overall 
medical science is making progress versus sarcoidosis? Can you ask me that one more time? Sure. Yeah. Would you say that overall medical science is making progress in the fight against sarcoidosis? Um, I do, um, but I also think that sarcoidosis lags behind um, many of the other lung diseases. I've had the chance to observe progress in, um, you know, most all lung diseases over the past 30 years of my career. And while we've made really great strides in many of them, sarcoidosis, unfortunately, is one we haven't made huge strides in. I think over the past five years, though, um, we have made some of those strides. And I think with the increased um, attention to the disease that FSR is putting onto it um, and increased attention by the NIH, I think that we will achieve the same successes that we've seen with the other lung diseases. So you feel like they're moving the bubble a little bit. I do. Right. So, uh, and FSR has given you a grant. Is that is that part of your um, transcriptonics research, or is that other research? No, we we do not have a grant yet for the transcriptomics. The the grant that um, I'm involved with is the Chan Zuckerberg Rare as One Sarcoidosis Diagnosis and Referral Framework Development project and it's basically a project so sarcoidosis takes a long time to diagnose particularly in um, in African Americans and so the goal is to figure out why that is and develop a strategy which can be applied worldwide to improve the speed at which patients get into a sarcoidosis center and I think they actually only picked us because of our large number of patients right well six thousand is a lot I'm yeah. you know that's um I drive all the way to Cleveland uh, which is I'm in Roanoke, Virginia. I could be at, in UNC in three hours. I, and <laughs> honestly, you guys weren't on my radar. Yeah, we um had a Dr. Jim Donahue um started our sarcoidosis answers here years ago, and he um got together with um our black churches um and established a really really good um support network and support group. And through that, I think we've um had a lot of outreach and um which allowed the patients to be enrolled in clinical trials and move the field forward a little bit. So I'm hoping to use that same um, strategy to help us continue to make advances in sarcoidosis. Yeah. Well, I personally uh, appreciate everything that, that you guys are doing and I hope you can Yeah, you know, the, the common refrain from everybody who comes on is I was going to the doctor for two years and nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. And eventually they figured out that it was sarcoidosis or eventually somebody did a biopsy and that's how we confirmed that it was sarcoidosis. And I just heard you say, we're trying to get to that answer a lot sooner. Exactly. Um, can you, but can you do that without a biopsy or do you have to have the biopsy? Um, nobody looks for sarcoidosis to be the first thing. Sure. Well, I guess we're trying to have the patients and physicians um, recognize it more rapidly because then they'll be referred sooner and get the biopsy sooner. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking it'd be pre-biopsy. Yeah, pre-biopsy. So what we need is more physicians to be thinking, hmm, this might this could be sarcoidosis. I think so. And, and also the patients, right? You know, um, you can help your doctor. Doc, do you think this could be sarcoidosis? You know, if you're coming right. back for the fourth time and I'm not getting better. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, most people have never heard of sarcoidosis until they're diagnosed. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So we're, we're, we are doing at FSR, I, as a volunteer and with this very podcast, you know, I'm hoping that more and more people, um, are aware of sarcoidosis because it's, it's not something I remember when the doctor told me I had it, I thought he was telling me that 
oidosis just sounded like it meant cancer, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you know, um, or, or I saw, you know, I don't know, but so they had to explain it to me when I was diagnosed. Um, so, uh, how many patients are you going to be seeing say in the next week or so? Are you, are you like, do you go from the lab to the clinic or are you in the, in the clinic three days a week? How, how, how does your yeah. park work work? Um, I, Go to the clinic um, every morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for a half day. Um, right. Yep. And presently, actually, so I had a sarcoidosis clinic for nine years. Um, but presently, I, I have a general pulmonary clinic. So I have other patients as well as sarcoidosis patients. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what makes me want to research it so bad. So I had this clinic for nine years and a lady flew to see me from Nebraska. You know, people Google, right? Because they need mm-hmm. help. And mm-hmm. after she left, I was thinking to myself, I know no more than your pulmonologist about how to treat your disease. Um, and so that's why I actually stopped having a sarcoidosis clinic because I was giving people false hope. You know, I have this algorithm that's been created by experts, but but we really, really need to understand the molecular pathogenesis of disease to make um, greater advances in therapy. And I think that we have the tools to do that in our lung institute here. And so that's kind of my major um, drive at this point. Sure. Well, uh... Uh, I just want to thank you and your colleagues for your research. And you've got that big pool of patients that you can draw information from. And of course, you have all of the, all those tools that you've talked about here that I won't even hazard to uh, repeat the names of, <laughs> of some of them. But I just uh, I want to thank you for everything you're doing to fight sarcoidosis. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I feel like a zombie. Just feeding at stumbling. I just want to say we are so fortunate that people like Dr. Tilly and his colleagues at UNC are interested specifically in sarcoidosis. And, and, you know, this is where those grants from FSR make a difference. You heard him say that FSR gave him a, gave him a grant to work on his research, and that money helps them with the research but it also guides them toward sarcoidosis as opposed to maybe another rare disease they might delve into because what they have there is a pulmonary clinic. Sarcoidosis is not the only thing that affects people there, and they could choose to look at something else, right? Uh, and, and I want to say all diseases deserve attention, but FSR exists to promote research for our disease, and it's important that the organization is effective. So our goal is to get people to look at sarcoidosis. And and so for people like Dr. Tilly and so forth, who are so talented and could look at many, many things, the fact that they're looking at sarcoidosis is is just a win for those of us who are are affected by it. So um, remember then, when you hear my little public service announcement in the middle of the podcast to donate to KISS, what can I do to to um, be a part of the sarcoidosis solution, donate to the KISS campaign. That money is well donated. It, it, it winds up many times in the hands of, of people like Dr. Tilly, so I hope you'll consider it. And I've got an account there. You can donate it to me. You can create your own account and donate it to yourself. It's very easy. Uh, but as long as it winds up in the hands of the, the folks at FSR, that's what's important, which reminds me, I do have a quick update for you on 
cycle for Sark because Royce Robertson has been on the podcast twice now, and we've talked about how he's planning this fundraising bike ride. He's going to go from Buffalo to Syracuse, New York. It's a three-day trip, uh, and he had to delay it because of the intense smoke coming into the United States from the Canadian wildfires. They've been in the news a lot this summer. Uh, There's been pictures of the skyline in New York City just about disappearing, and he's north of New York City, so he's closer to the wildfires. And his doctor said, because you have sarcoidosis, you, you cannot undertake this major epic trip and breathe in smoke for three days. So he delayed it, and... Uh, as of now, it looks like the, the either the wildfires have subsided or the wind has shifted so the smoke's not coming into the United States so much. But the new date for that ride is August 7th through 9th. So in the meantime, Royce is still fundraising. And you, again, you go to the FSR website, you click on KISS, and then you look for Cycle 4 Sark, and that's Cycle with the number 4, Sark, and then you'll be able to make a donation with your credit card. So something that you could possibly consider. And once Royce does that ride, uh, we will have him back on. He'll be able to talk about it. talk about the fundraising, talk about uh, the success of, of the ride, what it was like, how strenuous it was for somebody with sarcoidosis to do that. And I think that that's uh, that's good conversation for late summer or early fall. And I look forward to hearing how it goes and Hopefully next summer, uh, I really want to go with him and do that, and I want to uh, I want to attract a group of us. But that's just uh, that's just a dream for for next summer. Let's wait and see how this one goes, and let's let's help Royce out. I've already made a donation myself, by the way. The official Sark Fighter song is Zombie, and you hear bits and pieces of it all through the podcast. That's by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter. And if you go back and listen to episode 12, you'll hear what inspired him to write the song. I release this podcast every other Monday as I am speaking today and looking over. There he is. My trusty dog, Dougal, is curled up on the chair in my office. And Dougal makes my life so much better. The backstory to the founding of FSR is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson, who started it at their kitchen table more than 20 years ago. The Sark Fighter podcast can be found on Facebook and on Instagram. I'm on Peloton as Sark Fighter. I have a cycling blog called Carlin the Cyclist, which includes a section about cycling with sarcoidosis. And very soon I'll be publishing uh, an entry, a blog, if you will. I just spent some time riding e-bikes, and they may very well be the best answer yet. If you want to ride a bicycle, but sarcoidosis has set you back, especially if you have pulmonary issues, because e-bikes are a game changer. Uh, they really make it easy for anyone. If you can ride a bicycle, but you don't have the breath that you used to have or the strength, an e-bike could definitely be your answer. I'm going to be writing about that soon, so look for that. Also, if you're new here and you're trying to just figure out what sarcoidosis is, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. My story is episode one. If you'd like to contact me, and a lot of people do, and I really appreciate it. Maybe you want to be in the podcast. You just want to tell me, uh, give me a suggestion, uh, a criticism, whatever it is. You can email me at carlinagency at gmail.com. That's in the show notes. So just go down and click on the link. 
And it does help me reach more people and grow the show if you share that link, if you share the link to the podcast on your social media. And if you like it, just tell one person here in the sarcoidosis space. Maybe it's a fellow SARC patient that you know. Maybe it's your doctor, a researcher, somebody you know. But just tell one person, hey, did you know that there's a guy out there talking about sarcoidosis and interviewing the top researchers in the country? Uh, let them know that um, that we're here with the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. And of course, always hit that subscribe button and give the show a nice review wherever you get your downloads. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away.